I suspect most of you are familiar with the words from, um, from the 29th chapter of Proverbs, verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. This week I, I came across an article that, that further expanded that sentiment. And I must tell you, it was a little bit sobering. But as we're thinking about vision this morning, I, I want to share these words with you. If there is no vision for the campus, there'll be no ministry at hundreds of universities where the fields are white unto harvest. If there's no vision for ethnic persons, then our ministry will be limited to white Anglo-Saxons. And that's sinful. If there's no vision for the hungry, the homeless, and the hopeless, then our church and ministry is limited to those who are filled, and we become a worship club, not the body of Christ at work in the world. If there is no vision for the single person, then our ministry will help only the traditional family. And if there is no vision for divorced persons, our ministry will only serve the married. And if there is no vision for justice, then there will only be cries of anguish and the powerlessness to transform injustice in our community. If there is no vision for faith, for faith development and dynamic discipleship, then the joy of growing and moving forward in faith will never be known. If there is no vision for world evangelism, then the church becomes a museum rather than a launching pad to reach the lost and the unsaved for Jesus. I'm convinced that if we're going to be a passionate church, that passionate churches are always visionary churches. Passionate churches are always made up of, of people who, who dare to dream big dreams. People who can see what beyond what, what is present, what is and cast an eye upon the future and the possibilities that God holds. People who can look beyond the surface, beneath the surface, and to see the beauty, the beauty of people, the beauty and circumstances that are often hidden away. That passionate churches are filled with people who don't succumb when the struggles seem overbearing. Because deep in their hearts, there, there is this, this unrelenting vision, this irresistible vision of what God wants to accomplish in us and through us today and forever. You get a glimpse of that kind of church at the end of, of Acts chapter 2. Because what you see there is literally 
the fulfillment of Jesus' words when he said to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. By the time we get to Acts 2, Pentecost has already occurred. 3,000 people have been baptized. Every day since, there are more and more coming to faith. That group of believers, they are molding themselves into a new community, a family of faith. They have already committed themselves to, to growing in their understanding of what God wants to do, devoted to the disciples' teaching. They are committed to growing in the image of Jesus, an image that includes acceptance, that includes compassion, that includes self-sacrifice. It is a church that is bound and determined to do everything they can to change their world and their future. I look at that and I can't help but wonder and hope, are we going to be that kind of passionate and visionary church? Are, are we a people who hold before us in all that we seek and all that we plan and all that we do, God's grand vision? for the Methodist of Fountain City? Or are we going to be those that just sort of exist right where we are? If we're going to be that visionary people making a difference in our corner of the world and throughout the world, this morning we need to address four fundamental questions. And I'll begin with this. Is our vision God's vision for us? We got to start there because quite frankly, it is real easy to, to, to mix up, to lose sight of what is God's vision versus what is mine. Because too often God's vision is clouded because we know what we want. And, and, and too often God's vision is clouded because we think we know how things ought to be done. And, and too often God's vision is clouded because we seek what's best for us, those of us gathered here. It's real easy to, to mistake my vision for God's vision, and we won't be the first. In fact, this is a repeated occurrence in the life of David. I think especially of an incident in, in the second chapter of 2 Samuel. David is at the very zenith of his reign. He has finally defeated the Philistines. He has succeeded in drawing all the tribes of Israel into one unified nation. And so his, his popularity is as high as it will ever be. But there's one thing that troubles David. Earlier in the battles with the Philistines, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. 
And now that David has it back, David believes that the best place for that ark is in Jerusalem. And so he sets forth to retrieve it and bring it home. Now, when you look at that, it looks like a no-brainer. Of course, that's where it belonged. That ark of the covenant, it contained those tablets upon which the laws of Moses were written. That ark of the covenant, it, it had led the people from Sinai all the way into the promised land. That ark of the covenant represented God's, uh, God's covenant with his people, God's love for his people, God's presence among his people, and God's faithfulness to his people. Surely it belonged in Jerusalem. But David forgot something. In all of his zeal and his best intentions, David omitted a very important step. David never asked, Lord, is this what you want for us? He assumed that it was right. And that assumption in that story leads to a tragic death. I'd like to say David learned from his mistake, but he's going to do the same thing when he decides that it's best to have a census. And that angers God. He'll make the same mistake when he decides God needs a temple. And God has something else in mind. I mention that because it can happen to all of us. That we get so caught up in our lives in thinking we know what's best for us, what's best for our church, that that we fail to take the time to say, Lord, what is your vision for me? And if we're going to be about the work of God, friends, we must be led by the vision of God. So that leads us to a second question. And the second question is, well, how do we know and discern God's will and God's vision. There are two parts to that answer. And the first part is this. There are certain characteristics of God's vision that will never, ever change. Now the particulars will because of changing circumstances. But the characteristics will never change. For example, example, God's vision will always reflect God's character. Character of compassion and mercy, kindness and holiness. And God's vision will reflect that as well. God's vision will always make provision for the, for the lowest, the least, the last, and the lost. Because those are the ones for whom God is most concerned. And quite frankly, in our decision making, too many times we don't think of them. God's vision will, will always, always 
tear down walls that divide and open doors that lead to reconciliation because God is a reconciling God and God always calls us to think beyond ourselves and to stretch our arms wider and wider to include all those that we can. God's vision will always, always confront evil in any form that it appears, injustice in any way that it exists. And God's vision, God's vision will always, always move us off of the places where we are right now. God's vision is never one that says stop. God's vision is always one that says go, that pulls us forward into something more than we have ever been. Well, if those are the qualities, how do we begin to see them in our decision-making and our opportunities? It is real simple. Look at Acts 2. Look at what they're doing. At the end of Acts 2, we see them gathering for worship. We see them devoted to studying the apostles' teaching, opening the word and understanding it. And we see them committed to prayer. It is through those simple yet powerful disciplines that they allow themselves to be drawn into the very presence of God. And in the presence of God, they experience new insight and the vision of God and are equipped with the power to make that vision come to life. So it behooves us, if we're serious about knowing and fulfilling God's vision, to continually put those kinds of disciplines in place so that we are in the place physically, spiritually, where we can begin to see what God longs to do with us. Well, here's the third question, and I got to warn you, this one gets real personal. Am I ready to step out of the box and take a leap of faith? God does not give birth to little dreams. They're God's dreams because they are beyond anything that you and I can do. God's dreams always stretch us, always call us to, to trust, to believe, to trust, and to follow. God's dreams always move us beyond our places of comfort. Think about it. If God calls us to do what looks like the impossible because he's the God who makes possibility out of every impossible circumstance. Just think about it. You got Abraham. He's 90 years old. God's got a dream. Look at the stars. You're going to have more descendants than the stars that you can count. He didn't tell him it's going to take 10 more years to get the first one. 
That doesn't make sense. That's bold. That's daring. But Abraham believed. And he began a journey with God. Think about Moses. You're going to get my people out of Egypt, the strongest power of that day. You're going to stand before Pharaoh and convince him to let his slave workforce leave. And then you're going to take them to a place that I'm going to show you. That doesn't make sense. I know why Moses said, Lord, can you find somebody else? But Moses believed and trusted and led those people to a land of promise. Think about the the vision God gave to Ezekiel when when the nation is in exile and, and, and there's no hope for the future at all. He looks at a valley of dry bones and God says, Oh, oh, mortal, can those bones live? Lord, is that a trick question? It's dust, it's decay. No. But Ezekiel didn't say no. Ezekiel dared to believe what doesn't make any sense at all. Yes, Lord, you know they can. And he watched the most amazing feat take place. A valley of dry bones rises to life and God's people rise to new beginnings as well. Well, What about that vision given to John? He is on a rock island doing hard labor. The the, the most powerful empire of all is, is his captor. And yet one Lord's day, he gets caught up in spirit, remember? And he sees this vision. This vision when Rome won't exist. This vision when tears won't exist. This vision of a time when there's not going to be any more heartbreak and heartache and there'll be no more captives. This vision when there'll be no darkness left in our souls but all will be light. This vision of when righteousness will finally triumph over every power of evil. You pick up the paper today and you're tempted to say it ain't going to happen. But friends... I stand before you as one who is convinced that God gives birth to these amazing, impossible, bold and daring dreams and God alone has the power to make them come true. And when you and I capture the vision and you and I dare to believe and to take steps of trust and faith, God's going to do more than anything we could ever ask or imagine right here among us. Are you ready to let that vision be your vision? And that leads to the fourth question. It's not a matter of just whether or not it's going to be our vision, but it's a matter of whether or not we are all in. Whether or not we are fully committed to the vision. So much so that we'll pay any price that we will do whatever it takes, that we would all dare to do our part so that God's vision for my life and for this wonderful church, that it is going to occur right here and right now. In this ending of Acts, these people are all in. 
You see it in the words that describe what's going on. Words like they were devoted. They are committed. They're spending time every day getting together to worship and praise and share in the Lord's Supper, to have fellowship times, to encourage one another. And when somebody's got a problem, they've pulled all their resources. We're not going to let anybody live in need any longer. Friends, that's a picture of a family, of a people that have said, Lord, we are all in for you. And where God's people are all in, God's spirit and God's power are going to be all over the place. You know, I started a little while ago, oh, about 15, 20 minutes ago, I started out by saying, reminding you of, of Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. I want to change it just a little. Where there is no vision that unifies, the people perish. We can't be following different visions. We've got to be following one vision and putting all that we have to, toward making that our reality. There's an old story about six people who on a bitterly cold night were sitting around a fire and before the night was over they had all frozen to death. Let me read you how it goes. It says, and, and they, they did because every one of them had a stick or a piece of wood and for some reason, none of them, not one, shared their wood. Listen to what it says. One woman could not give her stick because there was an African-American sitting at the table or at the campfire. She didn't like him. A homeless man wouldn't give his stick because across the way was a rich man and he blamed the rich people for his suffering. An African-American man did not give his stick because he blamed white people for the problems that had plagued his people and him personally. One person didn't give his stick because he realized looking around there were people there that didn't believe the way he did. The rich man sitting there didn't give his stick because there was obviously one very lazy, irresponsible person sitting there. He didn't want him to have anything. So they all held their sticks and through the night, the embers began to die, the fire went out, and they all perished. This is part of a poem. I want to read the last part. This is how it ends. Six logs held fast in death's still hand was proof of human sin. They didn't die from the cold without. They died from the cold within. A church that changes its community and world is a church where the fire within is a fire of vision and passion, a fire that inspires and compels. It is a fire that only can be ignited by the Spirit of God dwelling in us. I hope that we will be known as a passionate church, passionate about a vision that God gives and that together we make that vision 
real. So this morning, I have but one question. What vision, what vision are you following? Amen.